0: Section Seven of The Spell of Egypt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Spell of Egypt by Robert Smythe Hitchens, Chapter Seven, Karnak Part One. Buildings have personalities. Some fascinate as beautiful women fascinate. Some charm as a child may charm naively, simply, but irresistibly. Some, like conquerors, men of blood and iron, without bowels of mercy, pitiless and determined, strike to awe the soul, mingled with the almost gasping admiration that power wakes in man. Some bring a sense of heavenly peace to the heart. Some, like certain temples of the Greeks, by their immense dignity, speak to the nature, almost as music speaks, and change anxiety to trust. Some tug at the hidden cords of romance, and rouse a trembling response. Some seem to be mingling their tears with the tears of the dead, some their laughter with the laughter of the living. The traveller, sailing up the Nile, holds intercourse with many of these different personalities. He is sad, perhaps, as I was with Dendera, dreams in the sun with Abydos. Muses with Luxor beneath the little tapering minaret whence the call to prayer drops down to be answered by the Angelus bell. Falls into a reverie in the thinking place of Rameses II, near to the giant that was once the mightiest of all Egyptian statues. Eagerly wakes to the fascination of record at Deir el bahari Worships in Edfu. By Philae is carried into a realm of delicate magic, where engineers are not. Each prompts him to a different mood. Each wakes in his nature a different response. And at Karnak what is he? What mood enfolds him there? Is he sad, thoughtful, awed, or gay? An old lady in a helmet, and other things considered no doubt by her as suited to Egypt rather than to herself, remarked in my hearing, with a Scotch accent and an air of summing up, that Karnak was very nice indeed. There she was wrong, Scotch and wrong. Karnak is not nice. No temple that I have seen upon the banks of the Nile is nice. And Karnak cannot be summed up in a phrase, or in many phrases, cannot even be adequately described in few or many words. Long ago I saw it lighted up with colored fires one night for the Khedive, its ragged magnificence tinted with rose and livid green and blue its pylons glittering with artificial gold, its population of statues, its obelisks and columns, changing from things of dreams to things of day, from twilight marvels to shadowy specters, and from these to hard and piercing realities at the cruel will of pygmies crouching by its walls. Now, after many years, I saw it first quietly by moonlight after watching the sunset from the summit of the great pylon. That was a pageant worth more than the Khedives. I was in the air, had something of the released feeling I have often known upon the tower of Biskra, looking out toward evening to the Sahara spaces. But here I was not confronted with an immensity of nature, but with a gleaming river and an immensity of man. Beneath me was the native village, in the heart of daylight, dusty and unkempt but now becoming charged with velvety beauty, with the soft and heavy mystery that, at evening, is born among great palm-trees. Along the path that led from it, coming toward the avenue of sphinxes with ram's heads that watch forever before the temple door, a great white camel stepped, its rider a tiny child with a close white cap upon his head. The child was singing to the glory of the sunset, or was it to the glory of Amun? the Hidden One, once the local god of Thebes, to whom the grandest temple in the world was dedicated? I listened to the childish, quavering voice, twittering almost like a bird, and one word alone came up to me. The word one hears in Egypt from all the lips that speak and sing. From the Nubians, round their fires at night, from the little boatmen of the lower reaches of the Nile, from the Bedouins of the desert and the donkey-boys of the villages from the sheik who reads one's future in water spilt on a plate, and the bisharin with buttered curls who runs to sell one beads from his tent among the sand-dunes. Allah! the child was singing as he passed upon his way. Pigeons circled above their pretty towers. The bats came out, as if they knew how precious is their black at evening against the ethereal lemon color, the orange and the red. The little obelisk beyond the last sphinx on the left began to change. As in Egypt, all things change at sunset. Pylon and dusty bush, colossus and baked earth hovel, sycamore and tamarisk, statue and trotting donkey. It looked like a mysterious finger pointed in warning toward the sky. The Nile began to gleam. Upon its steel and silver torches of amber flame were lighted. The Libyan mountains became spectral beyond the tombs of the kings. The tiny, rough cupolas that mark a grave close to the Sphinxes, in daytime dingy and poor, now seemed made of some splendid material worthy to rube the mummy of a king. Far off a pool of the Nile, that from here looked like a little palm-fringed lake, turned ruby-red. The flags from the standard of Luxor, among the minarets, flew out straight against a sky that was pale as a primrose, almost cold in its amazing delicacy. I turned, and behind me the moon was risen. Already its silver rays fell upon the ruins of Karnak, upon the thickest of lotus columns, upon solitary gateways that now give entrance to no courts, upon the sacred lake with its reeds where the black water-fowl were asleep upon sloping walls, shored up by enormous stanchions, like ribs of some prehistoric leviathan, upon small chambers, upon fallen blocks of masonry, fragments of architrave and pavement, of capital and cornice, and upon the people of Karnak, those fascinating people who still cling to their habitation in the ruins, faithful through misfortune, affectionate with a steadfastness that defies the cruelty of time, upon the little, lonely white sphinx with the woman's face and the downward-sloping eyes, full of sleepy seduction, upon Rameses II with the face of a kindly child, not of a king, upon the sphinx, bereft of its companion, which crouches before the kiosk of Taharga, the king of Ethiopia, upon those two who stand together as if devoted, yet by their attitudes seem to express characters diametrically opposed, gray men and vivid, the one with folded arms calling to peace, the other with arms stretched down in a gesture of crude determination, summoning war, as if from the underworld, upon the granite foot and ankle in the temple of Rameses Third, which in their perfection, like the headless victory in Paris and the Neobide Bide Ceriamanti in the Vatican, suggest a great personality that once met with is not to be forgotten." upon those and their companions who would not forsake the halls and courts where once they dwelt with splendor, where now they dwell with ruin that attracts the gaping world. The moon was risen, but the west was still full of color and light. It faded. There was a pause. Only a bar of dull red, holding a hint of brown, by where the sun had sunk. And minutes passed. Minutes for me full of silent expectation, while the moonlight grew a little stronger, a few more silver rays slipped down upon the ruins. I turned toward the east. And then came that curious crescendo of color and light which, in Egypt, succeeds the diminuendo of color and light that is the prelude to the pause before the afterglow. Everything seemed to be in subtle movement, heaving as a breast heaves with the breath, swelling slightly as if in an effort to be more to attract attention to gain insignificance pale things become livid holding apparently some under brightness which partly penetrated its envelope but a brightness that was white and almost frightful black things seemed to glow with blackness the air quivered its silence surely thrilled with sound with sound that grew ever louder in the east i saw an effect to the west I turned for the cause. The sunset light was returning. Horace would not permit Tum to reign even for a few brief moments, and Kunz, the sacred god of the moon, would be witness of a conflict in that lovely western region of the ocean of the sky where the bark of the sun had floated away beneath the mountain rim upon the red and orange tides. The afterglow was like an exquisite spasm, is always like an exquisite spasm a beautiful, almost desperate effort ending in the quiet darkness of defeat. And through that spasmodic effort a world lived for some minutes with a life that seemed unreal, startling, magical. Color returned to the sky, color ethereal, trembling as if it knew it ought not to return. Yet it stayed for a while and even glowed, though it looked always strangely purified and full of crystal coldness. The birds that flew against it were no longer birds, but dark, moving ornaments, devised surely by a supreme artist to heighten here and there the beauty of the sky. Everything that moved against the afterglow—man, woman, child, camel and donkey, dog and goat, languishing buffalo and plunging horse—became at once an ornament, invented, I fancied, by a genius to emphasize, by relieving it, the color in which the sky was drowned. And Coons watched serenely, as if he knew the end. And almost suddenly the miraculous effort failed. Things again revealed their truth, whether commonplace or not. That pool of the Nile was no more a red jewel set in a feathery pattern of strange design, but only water fading from my sight beyond a group of palms. And that below me was only a camel going homeward, and that a child leading a bronze-colored sheep with a curly coat, and that a dusty, flat-roofed hovel, not the fairy home of Jinn, or the abode of some magician working marvels with the sun-rays he had gathered in his net. The air was no longer thrilling with music. The breast that had heaved with a divine breath was still as the breast of a corpse. And Kunz reigned quietly over the plains of Karnak. End of Section 7